Good morning. Before we dive in, let's bow once more for prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as we open up your word together, that we would hear from you, that our hearts would be tuned into you, and that, Lord, we're thankful that you can meet us where we're at this morning. So I pray that you would guide us as we listen, and that you would guide me as I speak, and that you would do a work among us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt the fact that you don't belong? Like somehow you're out of place. Maybe some of you experienced that this morning as you went out the front door and you saw snow on the ground in front of you and you just thought, I don't belong here. I belong where it is warm. Uh, back in 2006, I was studying in Ecuador. And I've told this story before, but I think it's related to this, so I want to tell it again. I was studying for a semester in Ecuador, and I, I had this commitment that I did not want to be like a tourist. That was my intention. And so I, I tried to do everything I could to really learn from the culture around me and immerse myself in the culture around me. So at night, I would go out and kind of roam the town and just interact. And one night I went out, and I'm not sure even what the occasion was, but there was this fireworks festival, and um, just lots of fire was going on that night, lots of different things. Uh, But the grand finale of the night was in the middle of the town, this 20-foot-tall, two-story-high tower that had been built, made entirely out of fireworks. And so as the grand finale, some people came with torches and lit the, fire, or lit the tower on fire, and all the fireworks started going off in every direction, and it was just this blaze of glory that I'd never seen before. And then the tourists inside of me started to rise up. And I thought to myself, I've got to get this on video. I have got to get this. So I, I put, took out my camera. This was before smartphones. And so I went in to like get the best shot possible. So I'm kind of getting closer to the tower. And what I think was happening is that the crowd around me was starting to back up and get farther away. So I'm getting closer. Like I really need to get this shot. And then I think they were anticipating what was about to happen because the tower was made out of fireworks and the bottom of it had burned. So the bottom of it gave way, the top of it collapsed through, and then landed on its side. And before I knew it, a firework had launched out and hit me straight in the chest, knocking me onto my back. It's all on film. Knocking me onto my back, and then the firework landed like right here as I'm on my back and just started going off. Sparks in the air is all I could see, the sound of it, like, and I thought to myself, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right here in Ecuador. And then uh, all of a sudden, somebody grabbed me by the arm and pulled me out, and I stood up, and the crowd around me was looking at me, 
and with my camera in my hand. And I felt the fact that I didn't belong. I felt like I was out of place. I had more to learn about Ecuador. Have you ever felt the fact that you don't belong? You know, sometimes it's a, it's a little faux pas or a snafu like I experience, and it's an opportunity to learn about yourself and to learn from others and laugh a bit, but other times it's not as laughable. Other times it's more serious. The feeling like you don't belong can leave you feeling confused and alienated and disoriented. That's what our passage talks about today. That's what our passage will address today. So I want to invite you to turn there if you can. If you're not already there, it's 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is towards the very end of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to walk through verses 3 through 12. Last week, Pastor Ralph introduced this series, First Peter. We're going to be in it um, through about through the month of June. And he mentioned that Peter, the author, uses a really interesting term for Christians throughout this book. Repeatedly, Peter calls Christians exiles. And that's significant Because an exile is literally someone who is living in a land that is not their own. Peter uses this imagery to describe Christians in a spiritual sense. As Christians, we are exiles living in a world that is not ultimately our home. And so it means that we belong somewhere else and we don't quite belong in our surroundings. So my question is, what about when that difference is hard? What about when we feel that tension, that difficulty in navigating the fact that here we belong here, but we live here and we don't quite belong here? What do we do when we feel that tension of not quite being at home? It plays out in all sorts of ways. Maybe it plays out in the area of values as Christians, we often have different values in the surrounding world. And so we live in a world with this set of values, but we live by a different set of values. Sometimes that can create a tension, whether it's with others or even within ourselves. For example, if you're a Christian who happens to be single and you desire to be in a relationship Honestly, sometimes it might be hard to have a different set of values for dating than the surrounding world. You might look out and think, I would be in a relationship right now if I was operating under the same values as the world around me. And that can be hard. I hear you, that can be hard. It it can also play out uh, among our, our family And friends, maybe you're the only Christian in those settings. And every time you make a mistake, someone is right there to say, I thought you were a Christian. And you call yourself a Christian. Maybe it plays out at work. Maybe every time another public scandal of a church leader comes out and hits the headlines, you walk into the office 
and you're called to give an account. You are the sole representative of all Christianity. You are the spokesperson and you must speak for your people. Or maybe you pull away from locker room humor or gossip at work and it leaves you ostracized. You see, sometimes people at work respect you for being a Christian, but what about when they don't? It can be hard. It also plays out in the area of sickness. Because as Christians, we know that in our true home, where we belong, there will be no sickness or pain or death. But in this broken world, there is. And so we feel that tension. Here we are living here and we're not quite home. And it can wear us down to deal with chronic or terminal illness or Walk alongside of our loved ones who are. That's real. All these and more are the various forms of hardship associated with not being at home. And our passage today introduces this theme. Suffering. Particularly the various forms of suffering that come from being in exile that come from not being at home. And if this was real for us, and I know it is, you can bet it was probably even more real to the Christians that Peter was first writing to. But sometimes we exaggerate the difference. Because, yes, they were living under the rule of the infamous Roman emperor named Nero. He's famous for his persecution against Christians. But at the time that this letter, 1 Peter, was written... That public campaign against Christians hadn't quite taken place yet. It was just kind of like the rumblings before the earthquake. So what kind of opposition at this point were they going through? When we, we, when we put together all the different things we read um, in the letter, this is the picture that we get. In fact, I have a slide. Okay, here's the different kind of forms of opposition they're going through. First Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, so being spoken against. And then First Peter 3.9, do not pay evil, repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Being reviled, being insulted. Or once again in First Peter 4.14, if you are being insulted, and then back to 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered. You see? Insults, accusation, and ridicule. That's what they were going through. It's social and relational tension. Feeling like an outsider for not being at home. And, and we can be sure that they were also just experiencing the pain of living in a world that is broken and bodies that fail, and loved ones that can, that can get sick. So, like us, but probably even more intense, they were experiencing the pain of exile. And so, in that context, what does Peter tell them? How does he help them? How does he help them get through this? Because it seems like they were struggling a bit, and they needed a little bit of encouragement. So look at how this passage begins. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Look at how it begins. It says, blessed be God. In other words, praise God 
And then verse 6, and this you rejoice. And then verse 8, rejoice with joy inexpressible. What? Is Peter in touch with reality here? Does he know what they are going through? Yes. He experienced it himself. In fact, tradition tells us that under Emperor Nero, he was ultimately crucified upside down for his faith. He knows. And he tells them in the midst of suffering to have joy. And I want you to know that is not the entirety of how we deal with suffering. It's a complex issue. But this is the main way that we walk through. Because when it comes to suffering, it's not about going around it. There's no way around it. It's not about ducking it. It's not about closing our eyes and pretending it's not there like certain people do when a bee is around. It doesn't work. See, when it comes to suffering, the only way to deal with it is to go through it. And joy helps us to go through keeping our head above the water. I know this is real. I know that some of you are here this morning and your head is just coming up from air every now and again. I believe joy can help us keep our heads above the water. And so this passage helps us. I I can't tell you that it's going to fix everything. Like, hey, just listen to my sermon and everything will be okay. No. But I do believe this passage is a gift from God to help us. So Peter, the author by the Holy Spirit, gives us three reasons that we can have joy while we experience the pain of exile. Three reasons to more fully grasp what true joy is. So let's look at it. Number one, because of what awaits us in the future. Number two, because of what is happening in the now. And number three, because of what we are taught from the past. Future, present, past. So let's jump in to the first one found in verses three through five. I know that was a long intro, but suffering is one of those things that you just want to deal with well before you jump into it. So our first section, verses three through five, let's read it. Here's Peter chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The focus of this section is the future. We can have joy because of what lies ahead what awaits us in the future. And it starts out with that expression of joy. Bless God. Praise God. And then it moves into why. Because in his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Born again. Maybe we're used to that expression, especially, especially because it, you know, particularly a few decades ago, it was, it was used often to describe born against Christians. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think we've used it so often that maybe it doesn't strike us like it should. Maybe it's lost its force on us a bit. Have you ever thought about it? 
Being born is probably the most drastic change you will ever go through in your entire life. Your whole existence up to that point, everything you knew has been in the dark, surrounded by fluid. And then all of a sudden, you are in bright light, surrounded by air. It's a drastic change into a brand new reality. No wonder babies are crying. Everything is new. The striking thing is that's the imagery that Jesus and the early church chose to describe becoming a Christian. It's going from one reality to a totally different reality. So what is this new reality that we're born into? Peter says here, living hope. Isn't that interesting? That's our new reality. Like a baby is born into air, a Christian is born into living hope. That's our new atmosphere. That's the air we breathe. Living hope. That's our new reality that we walk in. And notice that it's a living hope. What does that mean? It means it can't be extinguished. It's alive. No matter what happens, this hope is alive. You can't snuff it out. It's like those annoying trick birthday candles. You try to blow it out, and it comes right back. You blow it, comes right back. Then you blow it, and it comes right back. Like that candle is alive. Our hope is alive. Cannot be extinguished. See, this is important because all other forms of hope can be extinguished. And the result could be devastating. So maybe you put your hope in getting that relationship, but what if it doesn't work out? It can be devastating. Or maybe your hope is in being successful, but what if you get passed over or fail in front of everybody? That hope is extinguished, and it can really hurt. I listened to a book a while back that talks about how Americans often idolize feeling good. Spend so much time and money and energy trying to feel good, we put our hope in feeling good. But what if outside of our control, our circumstances go downward? Someone very dear to us suffers or our own body fails us. The hope of feeling good is extinguished. It can be really hard. What if your hope is in being beautiful, but you feel like you never measure up to the airbrushed images that the media puts out there, or you never get the amount of affirmation from somebody else that you want? That hope dies. It's extinguished. But there is a hope that is alive. There is a hope that can never be extinguished. Like an annoying birthday candle, it just keeps staying lit. And that's how we can get through the pain of being in exile. Because sometimes we want to live like the world around us. All of us deal with that. Sometimes we want to operate off of those same values and have our hopes in the same hopes. We don't want to deal with that tension, but this helps us stay as exiles and say, no, my hope is in the living hope. Why is it living? Because keep reading verse 3. 
It says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope is linked to the resurrection of Jesus. That's why it is alive, because as long as Jesus is alive, this hope is alive. What does Jesus being alive have to do with our hope? Because for believers who belong to him, his forever life is a promise and a guarantee of our forever life. That's our hope. That's what verse 4 explains. See, verse 4 explains that we are awaiting an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's a beautiful expression. And I wish I had time to unpack all of it. But basically, it's referring to... Back in the Old Testament, the inheritance was the promised land. But that inheritance was perishable. It was able to be defiled and it faded. And now we have an ultimate promised land. It's our forever life with God. Being with God forever. That's our inheritance. That's our future. That's what awaits us. That's what we were made for. And that's what makes our hearts sing. Being with God forever. There's a really interesting verse um, at the end of 1 Thessalonians. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.18. It's always struck me. It says, So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Like we're supposed to encourage one another with the fact that we will always be with the Lord. I had an interesting experience one time years ago with this verse. I was, um, I was in a church in Detroit just worshiping through song and worshiping next to a, a man next to me who I'd never met, an older guy, and we're just worshiping through song together, and I think we kind of felt that camaraderie. And as we're singing, God kind of nudged me to use this verse. I'd never done something like this before. God nudged me to... Tell him, hey, we'll be with the Lord always. And so after the song got done, I, I turned to him and I looked him in the eyes. I never met him before. And I said, hey, we'll always be with the Lord. And I will never forget just the joy that broke out on his face. And we just like shared this moment of basking in that reality. You see, there's encouragement here. We will always be with the Lord. That's what we were made for. And that's what heaven is all about. It's not about like strumming a little harp on a cloud. It's not about living in suburban-like houses. It's not about having great glorified beach bods. It's about being with Jesus. It's about being with God, sharing unfiltered space with God. That's what we were made for. We don't even fully know what it's like because we've just experienced a faint whisper of it. We'll always be with him. And he takes it upon himself to make sure that we'll get there. Look at verse 5. By God's power, we are being guarded through faith until we get there. We are being guarded by God's power until we get there. So if right now, for whatever reason, you're struggling, your head is more underwater than it is above water, please hear me. Please look at me. 
on the basis of this verse, I want you to know you are being held by God's power. You will get, he'll bring you all the way through this. He'll bring you home. See, that's our hope. That's our inheritance. And there's surely joy in that. That's the first reason we can have joy. Our living hope and our inheritance. Let's look at our second reason in verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9. All right. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the focus of the first section was more about the future, and this section is more about the present. Look again at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now. And again, look at verse 8, the second sentence. Though you do not now see him. You see, this is about now. Through various forms of hardship, God is doing something right now. Not later. Not just grin and bear it and it'll get better someday. God is up to something right now in the midst of hardship. So what is happening You see, we can have joy because of what's happening right now. But what is happening? This section gives us three reminders. Number one, just a brief one. We are reminded, number one, we are reminded that now is a little while. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. A little while? Honestly, when you're in the midst of hardship, it often does not feel that way. Way back in geometry, this might have been the only thing that I learned. I learned this. Geometry. Way back in geometry, I learned that this is a line. And this is a ray. Thank you. And this is a segment. And I want you to know that when you're in the midst of a hard time, it feels like this. It feels like something that will always be. It goes back forever and it endures forever. Or maybe this. This will be your forever. But I want you to know that this verse helps us take a step back and tells us that it is actually this. There will be an end. It is in a limited time period. There will be an end. And you'll get through it. And I don't want to minimize what we're going through. But one day we'll look back and it'll be like this. And I know we go through various things with various intensities. But I think often we'll look back and say, what was I so worried about? 
in this limited time period. But how is God using this little time period? How is God using this little while right now? Number two, we are reminded that the hardship is being used by God to purify our faith right now. Verse 7 refers to the process of refining gold. You take a raw rock, never done this, but I understand that. You take a raw rock, heat it up, and what comes out is pure gold. And Peter is saying that's what happens to your faith during hard times. God hijacks the pain, turns it on its head, and uses it for good. One time years ago when I was beginning to go through a difficult season, I heard somebody pray, God, thank you that you do not waste my pain. That's always stuck with me. God does not waste your pain. If you give it to him, takes it and uses it for good. So the third reminder is related to that. How is God using the hardship right now, today? We are reminded, number three, that it is being used to deepen our love for him. This comes out in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, though we don't see him, we love him, trust him, and rejoice in him. And that can be applied to all of life as a Christian, but I think, I think particularly, very much so, this applies to when we are going through hard times. Because when you're going through a difficult season, our, our vision often collapses, and honestly, it can be harder to see God. Like, God, I, I don't see what you're doing in this. How many psalms say that? Psalms in the Bible. God, I don't see you in this. But I believe that this is an opportunity for the genuineness of our love for God to go deeper than ever before. Why? Because it's easy to love somebody when it's easy. Sometimes Lisa and I sing the song, Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. It's easy to love somebody in sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. It's hard to love somebody when it's hard. But I believe that's when true love comes in. See, true love is there even when you're not feeling it. True love is there and stays committed to be there when it's hard. So hard times, when we're not feeling it in our relationship with God, when we're kind of struggling to see him, is actually an opportunity like never before for the authenticity of our love to go deeper for him. It's an opportunity to say, God, I love you, not because you're my personal genie, not because you're my pet and I have you tamed to my will. Not because you always do what I want you to do. Not because I have you all figured out, but because you're my God. You're my Redeemer. You're my Abba. You're my future. You are worthy. You are faithful. You are you, and I love you. 
My uh, current favorite worship song says to Jesus, more than anything that you can do, I just want you. That's real. That's powerful. And I think it speaks of real love. And by the way, people around you see that and they say, that's legit. That kind of faith is legit. That's the real thing, and I want that. You can have joy because of how God uses your hardship, how God uses my hardship, how God uses our hardship. Are you willing to let him? Release it to him. And there will be joy in that. So the final reason we can have joy in exile is found in verses 10 through 12. Let's read. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we've seen the first section focusing on the future, the second section focusing on the present, what's happening now, and now this final section focuses on the past. It's describing the ministry of the prophets who lived hundreds of years before First Peter was written and thousands of years before us. And thus we can have joy because of what we are taught from them, what we are taught from the past. So what are we taught from the past? The prophets in the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah and, and some of the Psalms and spanning all the way back to Moses foretold the coming of the Messiah. He was the one all history was pointing to. He was the one who would come and turn everything around. He was the one who would finally do what no one else had been able to do. He was the one who would bring, verse 10, grace and salvation. He was the one they were longing for. And yet their message was not fulfilled in their time. And they realized that they would not live to see it. It was fulfilled in our time. And in the time of First Peter, we get to live in the reality that they were longing for. Now, does the coming of Christ apply to the prophets of old? I believe Scripture says yes. But we're the ones who get to live that daily experience in the, in the reality of what He has done. We get to experience what they themselves longed for on the distant horizon. And not only have we experienced what prophets of old longed for, the whole passage ends on this interesting note. The whole passage ends telling us that angels long for it as well. It says things into which angels long to look. And it's talking about the good news. The good news that was preached. What does it mean that they long to look at this? Some of you saw Hamilton on Broadway. And I'm sure it was awesome being in the audience. But imagine being on the stage. Being there up close. 
seeing the people face to face, being a part of it all. You see, angels are like the audience of salvation, but we are on the stage. We are up close. We are a part of it. In other words, we experience it firsthand, and angels long to see that. And on top, on top of that, there's this powerful scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where angels are in God's presence, but they're covering their faces because He is so holy that they can't look upon Him. But Jesus has made us so holy that we can dare come right up to God in His presence as His children and look upon His face. All the while, while angels are like this, Look him in the face. That's the goodness of the good news. We have been given what the prophets and angels both longed for. And the big whopping point of this final section is for us to realize how precious is the gift of salvation. It makes us stop and ask, do we realize what we have? We have the very thing that has been longed for in heaven and history, and it's our daily reality, what we live in. And I think, I'm convinced, that this is a major component of getting through hard times when our head is under the water. I think it's so vital for us to realize how much we have because it's easy when times are tough to be consumed with what we lack. If I only had this, or if I only had that, then everything would be okay. But this final section reminds us of what we do have, the precious gift of salvation. If I have nothing else in life to give thanks for, I have Jesus, and that is enough. That really is the secret and the centerpiece of joy. I can have joy because I have Jesus. I can have joy because of the goodness of the good news. I'll give you an example. My record against God, my sins which pile up faster than I can count, has been erased permanently. When God sees me, he sees the perfect record of Jesus. No stain, no spot. And all the good that Jesus did is mine in God's eyes. So I'm treated as, not as I deserve, but as Jesus deserves. And the weight of sin is off my shoulders. I have a past that doesn't hang over me, and I have a hope that is held out to me. I have been adopted as God's child. He says, call me Abba, an intimate family name. I have been set free from the relentless cycle of trying to save myself, trying to earn my worth, and trying to be good enough. I'm free. There is rest in my soul. And my shame has been lifted. Jesus carried it away when he died a shameful death in my place, taking my shame. And the cross speaks of my worth more loudly than anything else. And I have a daily relationship with God where I can share my burdens. I have his help and strength in my heart through his spirit who lives inside of me. I have his presence constantly with me. And he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I've been given a purpose beyond a job or a lack thereof. I've been given an identity beyond any social construction of me. And I've been given a family beyond what is there naturally. That's the goodness Of the good news, and that's just a sample. The 
goodness of the good news is all that we have because we have Jesus. Sometimes when we're going through hard times, what we don't have can seem so massive. I think these verses remind us that what we do have is even And I think that helps us see big things as big, little things as little. And that ultimately, when we have Jesus, we have the big things. See, I could be a gazillionaire with perfect health. Everything seemingly going on. But if I didn't have things like hope, or peace, or joy, or knowing the Abba love of God flooding my heart. That's literally what Scripture says, flooding our hearts. What would it be worth? This helps us see big things as big and little things as little. I can tell you there's been hard times when I've been struggling, and I have to deliberately stop and think through what I have. Pray through it. And in the end, sometimes, sometimes I'm, I come out and I'm like, I am the richest man in the world. Honestly, I felt that way. You can ask Lisa. Sometimes I come out of prayer and I'm like, I'm the richest man in the world. And she's like, what happened to you? And at the very heart of it, it starts with Jesus. Everything flows from that. Look at all that we have because we have him. And that's why we can have joy. Not the fake, happy, clappy stuff, but the real stuff. Even when life is hard, it's not always showy. Sometimes joy is quiet, but it's a genuine rest and gratitude in our souls that can't be shaken because we always have something to be thankful for because we always have Jesus, the precious gift of salvation, what prophets and angels long to see. I'll say it once more. This final section calls us to stop and ask, do we realize what we have? Because I believe when we do, there is joy. I want to invite the band to come up at this time. I want to end with this. Have you ever felt the fact that you don't belong? That's what it means to be in exile. And that's what we're called in 1 Peter as Christians. And there's often hardship associated with being not at home. And yet this passage tells us, bless God, praise God, rejoice in this. In other words, we can have joy, true joy. It might not be loud, it might not be showy, but it is real. In this, you rejoice? Yes, we can have joy. God can help us to more fully grasp true joy. I want to encourage us to come to him this morning and ask him to help to drill something from his word into our hearts, something that we can come away with, something that brings us joy from what we see in the future, present, or past. We can have joy because of what awaits us in the future, a living hope, a flame that doesn't stay unlit. It keeps coming back. It's always alive. And an inheritance that tells us you will be with God forever.
And we can have joy because of what's happening in the now. Number one, because it's limited. But even more than that, because God is working in it now for your good. To refine your faith and deepen the authenticity of your love for Him. I want to encourage you to invite Him to move in it. Say, God, I'm, I'm going through this fire. Will you use it to refine me? Will you take me deeper because of this? And finally, we can have joy because of what we learned from the past. The precious gift of salvation that we've been given. The goodness of the good news. Savor it. Savor afresh the goodness of the good news. Let's pray.